This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets, where right now the tastes of fall are all over the place at your local Zupan's. In fact, they've got their fall beer brats available right now, including a potato and raclette beer brat, an Occidental smoky beer brat, and then Seattle cider caramelized onion and apple cider brat. That sounds good. So uh, I'm always a big fan of the sausages and brats that you can get at your local Zupans. Also on sale through October 10th, you can save on Double R Ranch boneless chuck roast, house-made meatloaf, Carton Farms boneless pork shoulder, organic strawberries, and much, much more. We always recommend that you become a member of the news feed online at zoopans.com. That way you find out about all the happenings happening at your local Zoopans, as well as weekly wine specials, recipes, and much, much more. So sign up for that at zoopans.com. And of course, stop by your local Zoopans, three locations to serve you, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Oswego. Right here it is time once again it's portland's food scene podcast right at the fork with your host chris angelus from portland food adventures and i'm co-host court johnson but i'm lying to you a little bit chris not here with us as he travels across europe as part of his portland food adventures international uh, so i will be taking interview duties today and uh, pretty excited about this conversation that i had just moments ago with sylvan mishima brockett Sylvan is a restaurant owner in San Francisco, but got his start more or less while attending Reed College and then going to work in the Portland area at one time working at a few different places, including Genoa and working alongside Kathy Wims. Uh, He's got a great story to tell. He's got a new cookbook, in fact, called Rintaro, Japanese food from Izikaya in California. Rintaro, by the way, is also the name of his restaurant here in San Francisco. Now, Sylvan will be in town. He's doing a book tour as his book is released on October 10th. So if you'd like, join Sylvan at Powell's Books at 3 p.m. on October 14th. That's next Saturday as he uh, has a little uh, book signing as well as a little interview Q&A with Nori DeVega, who we all probably know better through her social media handle, Nom Nom Nori. Uh, But I really enjoyed this conversation with Sylvan as he talks about his life growing up in Northern California. As he makes his way to Reed College, discovering that uh, he wants to be a restaurateur, and then how he went about that, and then transitioning from a successful restaurant into deciding that he wanted to release a book. So again, the new book is called Rintaro, Japanese Food from an Izikaya in California. It comes out on the 10th, and then he's going to be at Powell's Books on the 14th at 3 p.m. in downtown Portland. So again, here is my conversation with Sylvan Mishima Brockett on Right at the Fork. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angelis, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. I'm excited to talk to you because you have your roots. I don't know if they're your original roots in the food world in Portland, but um, you spent some time at Reed College and in Portland, which we will talk about. Yeah. But let's go, Sylvan, to the beginning. Where did okay. you? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And and we'll start in that because I think that's probably a good place for us to to start this conversation of of where we're going to end up today. 
Sure. So I, I grew up um, in, I was born in Kyoto in Japan. Um, and I lived there for the first eight months of my life. And then when I was a little baby, um, my parents had bought some property up in Northern California outside of Nevada City, which is a little town up in the Sierra foothills. And um, it was 40 acres um, without even a road that went into it. And they had a road made and they cleared the land. And my father, when he was in Japan, was studying Japanese carpentry. He was working as a temple carpenter's apprentice. Um, he's white. He's from Minnesota. And my mother's Japanese. And so they bought this land and, and uh, cleared a place for a house and put in a septic system and um, um, turned some of the timber into the wood that he used to build the house where I grew up. So it was definitely off the grid. Um, there was uh, no... Um, like, you know, municipal water or electricity. So we got our power from solar panels and from the generator that he used in his shop to uh, power his um, Japanese woodworking company. And the uh, water came from the creek. He put in a ramp pump that would pump the water up from the creek up into a storage tank and into our house. And then for a long time, until I was about 13, actually, I mentioned the septic system, but that didn't come till later. Um, we had outhouses. We'd dig a new outhouse. Oh, wow. Every summer, it was, and so it was pretty um, country. Yeah, yeah. I um, had kerosene lamps and wood stove, and in the winter it was cold. Um, the Japanese house he built for us is kind of like a 17th century style house, so very traditional. And being very traditional, it means it's very drafty. So beautiful in the summer and fairly miserable in the winter. So we'd all huddle in the kitchen. That was the only warm spot. Your dad free, being from, uh, you said Minnesota, right? Your yeah, dad exactly. being from Minnesota, what, what took him to Japan? I, he, he always said that he was um, planning a trip around the world after college. And the first place he flew to was Japan because his sister was there. Um, and he um, got really interested in Japanese architecture and temples when he was visiting all of these old buildings and shrines and, and uh, temples through, through Kyoto, which is kind of famous for those. And um, through um, a connection he had, he um, managed to get an apprenticeship with a Japanese uh, temple carpentry company. And when he committed to doing it, he had to commit to three years. Mm -hmm. So he thought about it for a while and eventually um, decided to do the work and was there for seven years working in Japan as an apprentice. Oh, wow. And then, and then of course, as you pointed out, the, the move of the family to Nevada city. So I, I think people living in the Portland area and the Pacific Northwest can have an appreciation for what it's like in Nevada city. I, I remember as a, as a teenager, um, I can't remember why we were going there, but we, somebody told me we're going to Nevada city. And in my mind, I know what Nevada is like, and right. I get to Nevada city and it's, it's the most forested area I'd ever been to until I, you know, eventually moved to Portland and had very similar. So when you talk about 40 anchor acres with no road, like it was probably just wall to wall trees, I would assume. It was. Yeah. And actually that was one of the reasons he uh, really was drawn to that area was because he also went to Reed college in Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he was there, he lived in a house in the Columbia gorge for one year, one or two years. So he just loved that kind of dense, thick, um, kind of canopied life. Yeah. I guess that answers the question I was going to ask you, you being from, uh, you know, originally Japan and then, and then Nevada city, what drew you to read, read college? And it sounds like it was your father having attended there. Yeah. I mean, that actually was a reason not to go. Uh, okay. He, he never pressured me one way or the other about that. Um, but, uh, it was like the kind of mid nineties and, um, I went to visit and, it was rainy and wet, as usually it is during the school year. Um, but I just really loved the feeling of the place and the kind of like intellectual rigor. And the kids were super interesting. And um, Portland seemed like um, a pretty cool town to me, having grown up in the, out in the woods. Um, it seemed like a huge city. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just appealed to me. When did um, – but, but, but you didn't go to Reed College, obviously. It wasn't for a, a, any sort of culinary training. 
they don't they don't have a program there do they no no no, no. it was a, I, it's a it's a liberal arts education yeah. so i um i studied history was my major and um I ended up kind of specializing as much as I could in French history. And then I wrote my thesis, which is the big project that you do at the end of the year on, um, on the development of the idea of taste, like someone having good taste uh, in France. And it turns out that kind of happened at the same time that um, French cuisine started to develop as its own national cuisine. So I tried to draw some kind of connection there. Sure. Okay. So that was kind of your entree into uh, thinking about uh, in a world of, of, of food, of culinary stuff. Yeah. And, and before that in high school, I mean, I'd always really been, um, really into eating and, uh, cooking with my mom who's a really fantastic cook. Um, and, uh, as my senior project in high school, I actually, I had a pop-up restaurant every Friday for a few months. Um, and I basically would cook anything I knew how to make. So it was like spaghetti and meatballs and Japanese curry and, um, you know, pretty terrible pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, I actually made fondue once, and I brought a burner and some kirsch and white wine to school and got in trouble with the uh, administration for bringing booze on campus. But, uh, yeah, that was my first cooking thing. And then bef- uh, I guess it was the year, summer before I started college, I worked um, at a restaurant in San Francisco that was just opening. It was... Um, my aunt's really good friend's husband and I was kind of his assistant. So I'd pick him up in the morning, drive him into the restaurant and I got to see the restaurant open Uh and um, work in the kitchen and then drive him home way late at night and got a real sense of what that restaurant life was. Yeah. At an early age. Cause I think that's kind of the, you know, I think more, more these days, uh, maybe in like a uh, post Anthony Bourdain world where like, I think he opened up a lot of people's eyes to what that restaurant life is like. Um, people have no idea kind of the, the, the lifestyle that's involved running, running a kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, um, uh, it was a huge place. I think it was 400 seats and um, uh, so many characters and I was 17 years old. So I was, you know, just a, young kid yeah. and uh, really made a huge impression on me. So you mentioned uh, that your, your mother was Japanese and that you loved to cook with her. Is, was, did you grow up eating primarily Japanese cuisine in the home or, or was your dad's influence being from Minnesota in there as well? Yeah, we occasionally, you know, for like holidays, he'd, you know, we'd have a leg of lamb with mint jelly, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or his very delicious cornbread. Um, but yeah, most, a lot of the meals we had were Japanese. So, um, my mother was quite young when she left Japan. She was 23, I think. And her mother, my grandmother wasn't much into food. Um, so she was pretty much self-taught, but has a really incredibly good palate. And, um, um, back in those days when she had tons of energy would just dive into these huge projects. Um, so yeah, we ate lots of Japanese food. Of course, getting the ingredients was a lot more difficult those days. We would get care packages from our mother with things from Japan. And then, you know, every couple of months we'd come down to San Francisco and there'd be a big shopping trip at the Japanese market Mm -hmm. to uh, stock up. So you, you end up in, uh, at Reed college, you do your thesis. Did you start looking at, um, at French cuisine, the, the, uh, I guess the, the French influence in terms of, of what taste is, when did you make that jump into, um, saying, you know, I'm going to become a restaurant guy. I mean, become a chef. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. I, it took a little while. I mean, I, I know that I, I knew that I really liked cooking. And, um, so when I was at Reed, actually I took a year off and I went to France and I worked at a restaurant in France and got abused pretty pretty terribly, which was a good experience, I think. Um, and you say that um, now, probably. At, I say that at, now. At, at the time, where, where in France was it? In Paris? It was no. It was in the south of France, near uh, Nice. Okay. And uh, I lived in a little shack behind the uh, restaurant. There were, um, I think, five of us cooking six days a week. We got a half a day off every every week, like one shift off a week. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty brutal, but, uh, learned a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and 
then when I got back into Portland, um, I started working at a restaurant called Zephro, um, which was a pretty influential restaurant, I think. Um, kind of the first of a new wave of restaurants. And then I worked also at a restaurant called Loberge, which is closed quite a while ago with um, a family friend, June Resnikoff, who my father actually knew through Reed. Um, and then after I graduated, I worked at a restaurant called Genoa, um, which was a fine dining Italian restaurant in Southeast on Belmont. And, um, yeah, these are all amazing. Genoa is, is the, is that your first time working? That's Kathy, right? Kathy Wims. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with Kathy. Yeah. She had just started when I, um, when I, when I started there. And did you, did you work with her also at Nostrana? Did you? No, uh, she opened Nostrana after I okay. left. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, you mentioned this earlier. So, was this early '90s, mid '90s that you were at Reed and, and working at the, those restaurants? When, when in the '90s was this? Uh, I think I started at Reed in '94, I guess, and then I took a year off, and then I started working at Zephro. I think, geez, uh, I think it was after I graduated. So that was like in the early 2000s, maybe like 99, 2000, something like that. I have to, I have to piece all of this together for myself because I wasn't in, in Portland yet. I didn't get to Portland until 2010. But as we've been doing this, this uh, food podcast you know, for Portland over the past decade, um, I'm learning the history. And, and it sounds like you were in Portland kind of right there as there's this pretty big shift in terms of um, restaurants coming about that we're going to kind of start putting – portland more and more on the map as you mentioned genoa is one of those absolutely for sure yeah so um so you worked at these restaurants and and that is that where you made so it was it there in portland that you made the determination this is what i want to do or were you still kind of iffy about it i was still kind of wishy-washy i mean i was like 21 years old or something so i uh moved on to san francisco with my uh, then girlfriend who's now my wife um jenny walkner who's also incidentally the publisher and editor of my cookbook um, and um, I started working uh, at Chez Panisse in Alice Waters' office kind of helping her in the office and then eventually uh, became her uh, primary assistant and I worked at Chez Panisse in the office, not in the kitchen for like six years um, and never really let on that I wanted to uh, open a restaurant or be a cook. And nobody really knew I cooked um, or had cooked before. Um, and I think it was during that time I spent some time. I'd visit Japan every year or two. And I was, you know, finally old enough to go out drinking and, and go out by myself with friends. So we would go out to these izakaya, these drinking spots and, you know, hang out smoke and drink and eat, you know, until late. And I love that experience so much. I thought that it would be something that Americans would be into and something I wanted to do. So for years, I kind of nursed this idea of opening Mizakaya. And then I finally um, got my nerve up and um, gave my notice at Japanese. And I went to France, I went, sorry, I went to Japan and I worked um, in Japan at a, at a restaurant starting my training so uh, i i think uh the izakaya um if the probably the closest equivalent in here in america would would that be like the neighborhood pub is that the best way to describe it or is there a better way uh it's kind of hard it's a little bit difficult because it's not you know like i think your neighborhood pub might have you know like um usually doesn't have much of a kitchen yeah. um uh izakaya i think that you know they're all sh- shapes and forms of them they're like really dinky little ones underneath the train tracks with you know a grill and a guy and he grills chicken yakitori and serves beer and that's it and then there are more deluxe ones that specialize in sake we'll have you know a hundred sake sake list and but it's uh, kind of originated i think from shops that sold sake and then they started selling sake to drink at the shop and then started to provide food to go with that and um, over the years it's kind of developed as a place where people 
tend to hang out in Japan for a, quite a long time with their friends. You know, Japanese houses are really small,、um, and it's hard to gather people together usually at your house because there's just not a lot of space. Sometimes it's you know intergenerational households, and you know if you don't want to be hanging out with your parents and grandparents, you want to have to go out. So. Kind of fills this social niche. As much as I want to try to give an equivalency here for something in the states, they're just they're so unique to the the Japanese way. And yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think maybe they might be most similar to like a tapas place in Spain,、um, where you know, lots of wines by the glass and you know, small things to eat to go with the wine. But you know, it's not just about the wine; it's certainly about the food as well. And it's also kind of about this kind of relaxed、uh, atmosphere of hanging out. So you you、uh, you go to Japan to to train. How long were you in Japan? I was there for my first trip was just six months long.、Um, six months, eight months. Anyway, it was it was a while.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned it in the introduction to the book, but I. I Bought a one-way ticket to Japan. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to eat a lot of really good things and, and try to find a job in a restaurant somewhere. In the U.S., there's a really strong tradition of staging. You know,、yep. and same in Europe, I think,、um, where you can show up at a place and, or you know, through a contact, find someone and you can spend some time in their kitchen volunteering. That is pretty uncommon in Japan.、Um, so. Um, I did have one kind of externship lined up through someone I met when I was in Alice Waters' office, and、um, then my friend、uh, Nancy Hachisu introduced me to a chef named Kanji Nakatani.、Uh, he's got a he has two restaurants now, but he had one then called Soboro, which was this really truly fantastic sober restaurant way out in the countryside, north of Tokyo.、Um, And he, I met him. We went there for dinner, and I really hit it off with him. And he agreed to have、uh, let me come in and work.、Um, I think he paid me not very much, but you know, enough. And I, I stayed in. Nancy at that point had a, a preschool,、uh, an immersion English immersion preschool. She's an American woman living in has been living in Japan for twenty, twenty or thirty years now.、Um, so she had these little. Kind of cottages that she、uh, kind of always rented for her teachers. So she let me stay in one of those cottages, and I I worked、um, at Kanji's restaurant.、Um, so it was amazing.、Experience. Yeah. So you, you basically kind of hobbled together your own your own training there.、Um, did Did you know? Did Did you have these things in place before you you booked that ticket and went to Japan? Oh no. Okay. I mean, I think I had the、um, the. The kind of externship at this、uh, place called Miyashita, which is a pretty fancy、um, couple and kaiseki majority food.、Uh, sorry, fancy, more traditional、um, Japanese restaurant in a really fancy part of Tokyo. And so I was working there a couple of days, and then I was working four days in、uh, Saitama. So I was kind of commuting back and forth. Hmm. So,、um, and and you said you did a couple of different. It was a couple of different.、Um Trips to Japan to to do that do that training. Yeah, so I went back once or twice a year、um, for you know, until, I mean until the pandemic. I've been going and spending some time in kitchens, but those first trip was like I think six or eight months, and then the second trip was a couple of months, and the, you know, the third year I was there for a few weeks, and so I, I made multiple trips there when I. Came back after my first big trip. I finally kind of had the confidence to start、um, a catering company. And I started a catering company called Peko Peko, doing、um, pretty straightforward Japanese food and bento.、Um, this was in 2007, right as the kind of economy collapsed. Yeah. So I had kind of hoped that I would be doing lots of like launch parties and you know gallery openings and you know whatever big. Celebrations, but nobody was spending any money. So I, I、uh, turned to doing、um, a really fancy bento. I had just bought a house, so I took the garage, which is a detached building, and 
gutted it and painted it white and um, uh, put in a commercial dishwasher and um, some propane burners and big fan in the window and uh, bought a couple of fridges off of Craigslist and uh, fashioned myself a catering kitchen out of my garage. Hmm. I, I think seven years have passed, so uh, all of the laws that I've broken, hopefully the statute of limitations. Sure, sure, sure. As I was going to say, it <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like the zoning might not have been exactly yeah. what it should have been, but... Yeah, then maybe the zoning, yeah. or the fire, the health department. Yeah. I was certainly completely under the radar. Although it was a great time in some ways to start a food business because, you know, like there are so many pop-ups happening now, like all the time. I mean, this is a time when food trucks were like a novelty. Yeah. You know, like the only food truck you had had kind of crappy sandwiches and bag of chips. Um, and at that time, food trucks, fancy food trucks were just kind of getting off the ground and uh, the idea of a pop-up was just a totally novel idea mm-hmm. so i did a lot of uh, pop-ups and um and uh, got a lot of attention I, I don't know if i would have gotten the same attention now that i would have gotten then um, we got you know we got a write-up from the new york times and all the, a lot of local media so it was it was really useful and of course most importantly i i started gathering the staff as the company the catering company grew um, so I started getting a really good group of people to work around me and uh, testing recipes. And then also, of course, finding ingredients because there are so many ingredients that are um, really specific uh, that are you know, quite common, obviously, in Japan, but less common here. Um, so I spent just a lot of time in the car driving all over Northern California looking for ume plums you know those japanese plums and that amazing fragrance or you know really good daikon or myoga which is like a relative of ginger it's like a, it's a shoot which is got a slightly spicy delicious refreshing taste so yeah it's, it, important it's interesting for me to hear you say that sylvan given you know being here in the bay area and knowing that there has there is a large asian population and there's been one here for some time but Despite all of that, you sound like you still had to get creative to source some of the stuff you were looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I grew up in a household that was my mother's Japanese. The house itself was this really super traditional Japanese house. My father's American, but I had abs- almost no no connection to the Japanese American community in California. Mm-hmm. All of the people that we knew who had a Japanese connection were you know, had just come from Japan, who are my mother's friends. Um, but there's this really long history of, of families who have been here for, you know, four, five, six generations. Many of them came and started farms. Um, so I've kind of, through the process of the Peko Peko Catering Company and then the restaurant, kind of been introduced to this whole world of Japanese-American agriculture, which has been really a boon for me, you know getting the right ingredients. Yeah. Well, I think this is a perfect time for us to take that uh, break. I promised you, Sylvan, to uh, have a, a word with uh, Ringside Steakhouse, and then we'll come back. I want to talk to you about the restaurant, the start of the restaurant, your cookbook. Uh, do you call it a cookbook, Sylvan? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Cookbook, so we're calling yeah. it. It's a beautiful book, by the way. It's just, it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. And then uh, we're going to talk about this event that's happening at Powell's Books uh, this coming uh, week. So we'll talk about that uh, right after this. Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat in Portland, an institution, as it were, Ringside Steakhouse. 79, over 79 years. I remember we were just saying 75 years, so time's flying, and uh, and we're coming up on an 80-year institution in Portland, uh, Ringside Steakhouse, where now, something they didn't have for most of those 80 years was, an, was outdoor dining, and their patio is awesome. And um, it's really nice spot to eat. They have they have some heaters out there if you need them. It's really pretty. So whether you're eating, you know, when you eat at ringside, you can either eat in the beautiful dining room, the bar. Now you can make reservations to eat in the bar or outside. Lots of choices there. In addition to lots of choices for different cuts of steak, right, Court? Yeah, it, I was just 
telling you this off air, Chris, I went just recently with my wife, Randy. Uh, you had been telling me you got to get the Wagyu. You got to get the Wagyu. I, I finally did um, because there's so many great items to choose from and I just hadn't got to it yet. I went with the olive fed Wagyu and easily the best steak I have ever had in my life. I, like, yeah. I was dumbfounded by it. It's a treat. It's not something you're going to get every time you go in there because it's a little expensive. Sure. But I've seen it for way more elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's something if you have, you know, a couple of times you get to say, just like you did, that it's the best steak you've ever had. And they yeah. have it. They have different options, too. So olive, olive fed is just one of them. The food, the food is delicious. The service is absolutely bar none. The best in town. We had Colin serving us and just the best service the entire night. Best food. If it's a special occasion, if it's not a special occasion, Ringside Steakhouse is the place to go. Yeah, it will be. Just go in there. It will turn into a special occasion. There it is. So, uh, and they also have food to go now, and they even on their website they've got a, a scrolling banner. Ringside steaks are on sale, so that's a good opportunity as well. So they are on West Burnside. They're open. Let's give the hours here: four thirty to nine Monday through Thursday, four to nine thirty Friday and Saturday, and four to nine on Sunday. And, of course, set up those reservations. You can do that through the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com, or on the Open Table app. So, as promised, um, so you went from the catering company uh, into Rotero? Yeah, so I had the catering company for seven years. Um, and uh, we kind of started growing and growing and growing, and eventually I had a child, and uh uh, my wife was uh, not so excited about having a bunch of my workers coming in through the house to use the bathroom constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found a, a more proper location. Um, and uh, we started doing bigger and bigger events and um, uh, started mass producing bento on a larger scale. And then all the while looking for spaces for a restaurant and I, I, uh, my plan was by the time I was 35, I was going to open, open a restaurant of my own. Um, I blew by that, blew, blew right past that deadline. I, I couldn't find the right space. And, you know, it's really expensive and it's a lot of money and work and kind of know-how to get a restaurant together. Mm-hmm. So um, I eventually did find a space and um, I found... Um, Actually, the woman who helped me find the space, Wendy Suji, ended up, she's a Japanese-American woman who had been staging in my catering kitchen. Um, and she knew of the space, and she's an architect and ended up being the architect on the build-out of the space. So she kind of designed the restaurant-y part of it, and then my father's company built all of the, the woodwork. And, and, and this is, we're talking about Rintaro. Which, which is in the Mission, would we say that it's Mission District of, of San Francisco? Yeah, it's kind of like Mission, South America. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, when, when, Somewhere when you think Asian or Japanese food, you don't automatically think Mission, correct? Or, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is me as the new guy to the, to the Bay Area, but, um, right. but, um, but a great location nonetheless. I mean, e- easy access right off the freeways. Um, I mean, that was for me kind of the big thing is I really wanted to have a place in san francisco um that was central yeah um and i didn't care too much about being on a street that was much populated i think my theory was that you know if you have a good restaurant people are going to come to you and if you are depending upon walk-ins you're kind of hosed anyway Mm -hmm. so um yeah I, i really liked that it was central and it's also you know if there's no traffic it's only 14 minutes to my home in oakland so it's kind of onto one onto the bridge and then off off the bridge and you're right here. Yeah. so that was important to was me. the was the intention of the restaurant um to to go kind of capture the that which is the izakaya or was that just the way it ended up yeah so yeah was the idea was to open an izakaya so i i definitely had a pretty strong feeling about that um my father's uh companies the work that he does um is so uh kind of high level i was a bit nervous that it was going to feel too fancy um 
but it's really aged in a nice way. So it's it's pretty relaxed. So we had a friend um, put together this incredible, you know, three day long playlist, and he, he uh, provided some incredibly good speakers and a amp and stereo. So we can play good music and we can play it loud, and so it's got a it's got a good feeling. And this was uh, was it two thousand fifteen when when you launched the uh, restaurant. Two, yeah, 2014 okay. in November. So just coming right up, almost nine years now. Nice. And and uh, as I've done, you know, m- my own research, Sylvan, I found that Bon Appetit did a write up on Rintero pretty pretty early on, um, talking about you. Was that intimidating to be getting some notoriety, uh, having just f- kind of launched? Um, no, I mean it was, of course, but uh, I mean it really, in some ways, kind of saved the restaurant. Um, we were kind of puttering along as we started we had a kind of big splashy opening and then you know the next restaurant opened and all of the people who go to new restaurants um as a habit stopped coming and so it was that was it was kind of the bump that we needed to get through the first couple of years i mean it was pretty touch and go in the beginning um you know we didn't have much money in the bank account it was pretty hand to mouth so once we got the kind of top was top number eight in the country for new restaurants um, that year. That really changed everything for us. So I'm super grateful for that. Yeah, and it sounds as if you were you were around. Not that this is like uh, this seemed to matter at all, but as you look at restaurants that launched um, just before the pandemic hit, um, you know, surprisingly, some of them survived, and some of those that you would have thought would have didn't that had been around for a long time. How was the pan- yeah. how was the pandemic? Um, for Intaro, because I know in the Bay Area, San Francisco specifically, uh, the challenges might have been even harder than I think that they might have been elsewhere. Because I know San Francisco put in, I think they put in more restrictions than I think a lot of the rest of the country saw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny. I I always kind of joke with my with my wife that after the pandemic, no one would want to talk about it again. <laughs> it was just so horrible. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I, I hate to complain because nobody died at the restaurant. Um, but it was really brutal. Um, I remember the, the day that I think it was like March 17th or something when the lockdown started. Um, that night we, uh, pivoted, I guess was the word everyone was using to a bento. So I had been at this catering company, you know, Pekka Pekka before the restaurant, and I still had all those supplies. So I had bento wrappers, I had all the recipes, um, I had the boxes, I just had all the stuff for it. So I went to Best Buy and got a new iPhone with a new phone number, called it the Bento Hotline, posted something on Instagram, and that night we started selling bento. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was crazy. It was truly insane. Um and, and, and I should say, and I should acknowledge this, I mean, we're, a lot of places aren't even out of the woods yet. Like I've been able to befriend restaurant owners here in the, in the, I, I live in South of market and they're still struggling today. And we, you know, we hear in Portland um, often restaurants that somehow made it through the pandemic, but now they're in kind of a new, new environment with, uh, you know, work work workers shortages and, and different challenges yeah. that yeah. they they are closing down now even though they survived what might have been the the a hard time but now suddenly it's surprisingly harder yeah it was interesting i mean right you know the pandemic itself was quite challenging the rules were changing all the time so we you know we went to you know outdoor dining and then it was rescinded and then kind of around that time um you know there's these crazy forest fires so yeah people wouldn't want to eat outside because it was like horrible smoke um there was that day of course when the sun didn't come out did you, were you here for that? i wasn't here for that but we had the exact same thing happening in portland it, it's kind of that eerie orange wake up where you feel like you know it's the apocalypse and you've stepped outside it was, it was yeah. so crazy i mean like you know the gas station still had their like lights on mm-hmm. you know like the ones that are you know would turn off because of the daylight um it was yeah it was crazy yeah um so yeah, we uh, I managed to keep um, all of the cooks employed, um, and uh, we had to lay off most of the um, front of house. But thank God for the really good unemployment benefits, so they were, you know, able to make a living. And I think that that 
thing you mentioned before of the difficulty of staffing after the pandemic is pretty interesting. I mean, I think a lot of servers, and I have a ton of respect for the people who work here and the people who worked before the pandemic, but I think that for a lot of people, serving is kind of something which you do on the side of the real thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're a potter or, you know, you, you know, you make honey or if you're in LA, you're an actor, you're an actor. Of course. Yeah. yeah it's the way that's the thing. Yep. But I think that it gave people a chance to having this unemployment money to kind of pursue the thing they actually wanted to do and kind of reflect on their lives about what they wanted to do. So I had a few of my veteran people leave to become, you know, full-time artists and potters, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but it did of course put a pretty big strain in the early days after the pandemic of keeping ourselves staffed Sure, yeah. um, when we opened up for regular service. Um, so we were, I think before the pandemic, we were open seven days, which was a lot mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people. Um, and then after the pandemic, we went to five days and then eventually opened up back up to six days. So. Do you think you're going to stick with that? I'm hearing from a few of the restaurant owners that I know that have really enjoyed having that one day off a week where they know that, you know, the refrigerator is not going to break down in the middle of, of service. Yeah. So, yes, um, exactly. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it might, which is, you know, kind of a throwback if you've spent time, you know, in, I, my, my experience with um, other cultures is in Europe is oftentimes not only will they have a day of the week, a Monday or a Tuesday where they're completely shut down. Um, but they also have that, you know, mid afternoon time where they completely shut down, which is, you know, foreign for a lot of Americans where we're ex- expecting our places to be open all the time. Yeah. Well, unfortunately or fortunately for me, um, Japan has the opposite work ethic. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> for there's a word, Koroshi, which means to die by overwork. Yeah. Um, so um, that's in your blood. Yeah. That's in your blood. <laughs> it's in my blood. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I think I think that seven days we were open seven days. That's something we decided to do early on because, you know, the economics of a restaurant, even a very successful restaurant, you, if you're doing very very well, you're at fifteen percent profit, um, and most restaurants are at like one or two percent profit, yeah. which you know for a business is not very much. So for us in the early days when we um, we're kind of moderately busy. That seventh day was the day we actually would make a profit. Right. Um, since then, thankfully, we've been pretty consistently busy every night. So it feels like kind of like a party here almost every night. Um, and uh, we can swing seven day, uh, six days, no problem. Hmm. Well, I, 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 obviously, I don't want to dwell on yeah. the the hard times or anything that might have been negative because I'm sure you, there was a lot of learning and you know, you talk about the pivoting or, or the adapting that had to take place and you probably figured out better ways to do, do some things. But with all that said, this is my horrible segue, Sylvan, into talking about, um, your book, which is coming out next week, October 10th. Um, and, uh, when did the idea for the full name of the book is Rintero Japanese food with an Izakaya in California. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, Rintaro Japanese food from an Izakaya in California. Yes, that's right. Yeah, when did uh, when did you decide to uh, to start? You know, kind of putting your concept into book form. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a really long time. As I mentioned, my um, my wife's a cookbook editor. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's now the publisher of this North American branch of Hardy Grant, which is an Australian company. Um, but before that, she was an executive editor at um, Penguin Random House in a subdivision called Ten Speed. So she, um, I've kind of watched her put together cookbooks for a really long time. And I've always seen how much work they are. And it always was something I was interested in, but also really intimidated by, especially since she complained bitterly about how most of the chefs she worked with couldn't really put in the time that was required in order to actually do it. Yeah. Um, and, um, my sister, Aya Brackett, who, uh, took the photos is she's a pretty accomplished photographer and she's done photos for me for years and years. Um, and, uh, for, you know, as far back as the catering Peco Peco times and of course all of our family trips and stuff. Um, so I, I kind of felt like I had a team together with, um, another friend of mine, Jessica Badalana, who was my co-writer and recipe tester. And she's also somebody I've known since Japanese. So I kind of had a team in mind um, for quite a while. 
Um, but it wasn't until I felt like I had enough staff in the restaurant and I, you know, bit the bullet and decided that we needed to have three sous chefs, not just one. <laughs> um, so that, you know, I wouldn't be burning people out by working on my own thing. So it wasn't until I kind of had the staffing and the restaurant sorted that I could actually commit to doing it a couple of years ago. Well, from what I have seen of it, it's it's not just, you know, a, a cookbook, but it's a beautiful book. Like, it's very artistic and um, just beautifully put together. Where, where did that kind of that artistic eye come from? Um, well, the, the designer did an incredibly good job. And, of course, the, the photographs are, are really lush and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that I, I my main thing when I was talking to my sister, we've worked together closely for such a long time it was a really easy uh, relationship but to make sure that everything looked really delicious that was a really important thing to me which seems obvious but if you look at cookbooks is not necessarily the priority yeah um and then i also wanted to kind of communicate the feeling of the restaurant um so everything we shot almost everything was shot in the restaurant so we found all kinds of nooks and crannies here to do it um and then a lot of the, kind of the graphic design and stuff comes from uh, these Japanese max, matchbox labels that were um, produced between the wars, between World War I and World War II. And they're, um, they're just super vital, kind of give this feeling of Japan around that time. Um, slightly nostalgic feeling. Um, and uh, just graphically really strong. So yeah. Well, it sounds sounds as if with your with your wife obviously being in the business of of you know editing and creating this this type of material cookbooks. Did you also reach out to other people that you had worked with over the years that maybe because we know Kathy Wims has has put out a I think she's put out at least two at least one. Mm-hmm. Did you reach out to any of these people to kind of make sure? you know, get their guidance or mentorship. And as you were putting, it doesn't have, um, wouldn't have yeah. to be Kathy, but anybody, did you talk to anybody? Not really, actually. I mean, I, uh, my wife really knows the whole process in, on inside and outside. And also Jessica Badalana has got written um, one book of her own. It's published. It's working on a second one and has worked on a bazillion other cookbooks. Yeah. So I kind of felt like, and then my sister's shot, many cookbooks so it was a pretty ex- with the exception of me a pretty experienced team of people you were the new guy we're, was working the with guy. the professionals yeah well I, exactly. I obviously kind of probably felt pretty pretty confident going in putting it together working yeah. with people yeah, yeah. Done it, was, it was good i mean it was interesting taking the recipes from the the restaurant which almost all the recipes in the book are from the restaurant and thinking about how to keep them real so that you know I kind of think that if you were to take this book, you could probably replicate the food at the restaurant in another restaurant somewhere else. Mm. Um, and I didn't want there to be any like secret steps I didn't put in. I wanted it to be written as though it were for like a really green cook um, who, you know, just started here at Rintaro and kind of telling them all the little things they need to do in order to make something good and something taste right. I, I think that's great. I mean, I mean, there's so w- whatever the industry, there's a lot of people who feel like they need to keep the secrets guarded. And then there's the others that, you know, that love it so much. They want other people to, to experience the, the joy yeah, of, for sure. of doing it. For it sounds sure. like that's what you're going after. So you're going to be in Portland at Powell's book on the uh, Powell's books on the 14th um, as part of, is this a, a big book tour that you're doing or is this you, are you just coming in specifically right now to uh, visit Portland? It's like a West Coast book tour, I guess you'd say. Okay. Um, so I'm going up to Seattle first, and I'm going to do a, an event up there at Book Larder, and then um, down to Portland and a couple of TV things, and then um, some dinners here, of course, in the Bay Area. And uh, we're having our opening party um, at the restaurant on next Tuesday for kind of friends of the restaurant, and um, then down to Los Angeles. Nice. Probably another uh, good reason for you to have three sous chefs now so that you're able to go and do this. Cause I was going to ask you about that. How, you know, how is it to leave a restaurant while you're kind of doing some publicity? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, right now it's actually great. Okay. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's really great to, to, um, to not be at the restaurant and then to get a text from a friend or a, an acquaintance who's come in and had a good dinner. 
Like that is so satisfying. Yeah, because the- so I'm really. Yeah, because grateful it, to my people. You, yeah, you know it's running the way you would you would be running if you were there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, specifically, and again, Sylvan, I'll, I'll mention this at the beginning of the podcast because we do a little custom intro. Um, but you're going to be at Pal's book on the 14th, 3 p.m., and it looks like you're going to um, have a conversation with uh, Nori De Vega, who will be having a conversation with you. Uh, people may know her from the the uh, social media handle Nom Nom Nori. Um, we love the stuff she puts out and, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, Sylvan. It's been, it's kind of a fascinating journey. So I don't think we can say for sure that Portland was what caused you to decide to move into the food world, but it was definitely an instrumental part of your, uh, of your process. Oh, for sure. I was, yeah, I was, um, Yes, Portland was very important to me. It's interesting. The food world has changed so much. I went on a little like uh, nostalgia tour when I was there over the summer, and um, you know, went by where Zephyr used to be, mm-hmm. and now it's something totally different. Genoa is shuttered. Yep. Loberge is now an empty building. Yeah, um, and even so it's a little bit, little bittersweet. But there's, you know, you know, when after Pock Pock's open and it's now closed, yeah. but it's just. The whole food universe has really exploded up there. Yeah. It's quite impressive. It has. And I've always thought Portland is a great place for a, a restaurateur to open a place because it's so much less expensive. And um, the, the regulations for opening a restaurant are so less, so much less stringent than they are in, in San Francisco. There we go. Well, maybe down the road when, you know, after the, your, your cookbook is in its second edition or third edition, then we can have maybe a Rentaro Portland version. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I can barely do one. <laughs> well, I uh, appreciate you nonetheless, Sylvan, for your time today. Thank you so much. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right